Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Genesis 14, and we'll read again verse 17 of chapter 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. Well, what a great privilege it is to lead a worship service on Thanksgiving Day, that day which our nation sets apart to give thanks unto the many blessings we receive from the hand of God. And I fear that all of us can relate to this fact that our own hearts, even as believers, are so reluctant to truly give thanks unto God. Maybe you can even think about the past year, things that you have been praying for and maybe even have had some answer to prayer after having prayed for them. Have you given the same care to thank God when he answers your prayers as you have been to ask for those blessings? It's a convicting thought where we do see also in this chapter, the great importance of thanksgiving unto the Lord upon the Lord bestowing remarkable blessings unto his people. I bring you this morning on this Thanksgiving day to a Thanksgiving celebration in the King's Dale or We would say modern English, the Valley of the Kings, which is mentioned here, according to its Hebrew uh, reference, the Valley of Shaveh, which is the King's Dale, and uh, which is mentioned once else in the entire Bible. And uh, children, if you know about that wicked man Absalom in the story of uh, the the history of David, you will look up 2 Samuel 18, verse 18, for the story of how Absalom erected his pillar in this uh, same location of the king's valley, or the valley of the kings. But we come here uh, this morning because of a very remarkable episode in the life of Abram, or as he would later be called, Abraham the father of the faithful and a model of true faith, at least in this instance. But as we would reflect upon how the Lord worked in Abram's life in this episode, I trust our hearts will be directed unto the the blessings that the Lord bestows through his covenant of grace in Jesus Christ also to us today. And we may take both comfort and instruction from this great history. So with the Lord's help, let us consider this passage, thinking particularly of verses 17 to 24, which we will take as our text. And we will consider thanksgiving in the Valley of the Kings under three points. 
First, a meal. Second, a blessing. And third, an example. A meal, a blessing, and an example. Well, children, you might remember that we covered this uh, history uh, recently in uh, the homeschool co-op where we've been going through this book of Genesis with some detail. And for all of you, I'm sure you can appreciate that this is a very remarkable episode in the history of Abram. There is Lot, Abram's nephew, who has foolishly chosen to take uh, his inheritance close to that wicked land of Sodom and Gomorrah, those two evil kings. And he does so at an unfortunate time because war breaks out between these two alliances of kings. Isn't that also what we've witnessed in the past weekend, that innocent civilians can get caught up in the struggles between two great powers through no particular fault of their own? And so this happened. You had one of the great superpowers, at least of that region, uh, led by the king Chedorlaomer, and he had enjoyed a place of prestige over uh, five other kings who then rebel against him after a time, among whom are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Chedorlaomer and his forces, they take many people captive into slavery, including Lot and his family. You can imagine how awful that would have been for Abram to receive news that his precious nephew, Lot, and his family and servants were now slaves of an ungodly uh, ruler. And I think there is instruction here also for us as Christian men and Christian citizens to take note of, which is that the word of God does not counsel us to be pacifists. Not at all, that men in particular are called, if they are godly, to martial virtue, to have the strength and the understanding necessary to defend the innocent, to defend those who are in danger. And in this case, Abram, as a godly man, takes this seriously. He has trained up his servants, most of them shepherds and not soldiers, but they've been trained up, we learn, for events such as this, and also Abram is taking care to make alliances with other uh, chief leaders of the region. And so what he does is, under cover of darkness, he attacks these victorious armies of Chedorlaomer in a surprise attack. And in a remarkable way, God grants him a victory. He rescues Lot and his family, and he himself is saved alive in a remarkable deliverance is given. We see here, do we not, the amazing care of God for his church and people, governing all things together for their good, even in the midst of tragedy, sorrow, hardship, and conflict. So also perhaps we, on this Thanksgiving morning, can reflect upon the year past and think of various spiritual battles that we have been in the midst of. In battles, whether in um, our own personal struggles with sin or with difficult um, uh, 
um, difficult uh, things that we have had to go through personally. We can see that the Lord has delivered us through us all despite our own sins and shortcomings. And so we may, with Abram, reflect upon his goodness and grace unto his people. And so in our text in particular, it is a period of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And how fitting it is that this would tune our own hearts, that the true spirit of thanksgiving, which is manifested in the life of Abram, would also be manifested in our own life by God's grace. And if we would examine our hearts and find that there is an ungrateful spirit, may this example indeed humble us under the hand of God that we may confess our sin and find forgiveness for the same. So what we may learn about uh, this incident, well, there is a meal, a meal, and maybe children, you're looking forward today to a really wonderful meal. And so it was in the life of Abram that God provided in a unique way a meal with another believer who loved the Lord Jesus Christ to give him refreshment and joy uh, as he expressed his thanksgiving to the Lord. And we read this in verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God. Well, it must have been surprising for Abram. There he is, maybe scarred uh, psychologically and maybe even through injury of some sort uh, from this great battle that had happened. And he's just marveling that he's alive after having conquered a much stronger force. And he's making his way back from having chased uh, Chedo Lamer's forces up um, beyond um, Damascus, as we read. And now as he's returning home through the king's valley, the valley of the kings, there approaches unto him this mysterious figure. And whether he was by himself or, or with others, we don't know. But we know that, that of all things, this man, who was not introduced as someone was known to Abram previously, he comes bearing this meal of bread and wine. And we understand the symbolism of bread and wine, at least somewhat, from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Not that I believe this is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but something of the significance is there. Bread is the most basic food for sustaining life. It is a life-sustaining food, and it represents, doesn't it, all of uh, what we receive from the earth and from the plants and from uh, human industry in order to sustain our bodies and our natural life. And then you have wine, which in the scriptures represents that which brings joy, not as it's used in excess and drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, but where used in moderation, it is a joy-bringing fruit of the vine. And so what better way to refresh a friend and fellow um, believer than these two things, bread and wine. There's a meal and, and there's wisdom there, isn't it? Where we want to communicate love to others, especially of the household of faith and in our own families and extended influence, we show hospitality 
by gathering around a dinner table and and breaking bread, as it were, sharing a wonderful meal, consecrated unto God in prayer, but welcoming others into our own families, extending that love even unto the stranger and one who is outside the household of faith and using this to express true Christian love. And how good it was of God at that point where perhaps Abram was traumatized or fearful or overwhelmed that he would send a fellow believer along the path as he's prone to do, doesn't it? In your own life, you can understand this. When you have sometimes been discouraged, have you not felt that there's the communion of saints coming alongside you? Maybe even people that you never otherwise knew, but they have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, the Lord brings refreshment from his people. So there is this meal, but, but I want to especially consider something about this host because it's the most interesting thing about Melchizedek. He's perhaps more important than you might understand just by looking at this brief history. And certainly there's not that much just on the surface. It's remarkable That even after all these years, since the days of Noah, when all of the families of the earth were in the covenant and church of God, in that family of Noah, even after the um, apostasy of the Tower of Babel, and even after the, the light of true religion is darkening around the world, yet there is a true follower of God. He is called the priest of the most high God. And so if he's a priest of the most high God, we know that not only was he a follower of God, but he had been ordained unto a valid ministry in the office of a priest. He was leading others in worship. And lest we go beyond that, we can, in speculation, we may simply say that God does preserve his church, even at that point, um, in a context that we know very little about. We may say also that uh, there are things to observe about the fact that he was also a king, the king of Salem. And the majority report on that from church history and commentators is that this is the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which indeed is referred to under the shorter term Salem or peace, in Psalm 66, verse 2, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Some people have quibbled as to whether the proximity of Jerusalem really makes sense in this context, um, being many years before that, nation, that city was populated by the descendants of Abraham. However, uh, I think that uh, whether or not the exact geography would make sense that he would actually be there just in the course of his own duties as the king of Salem, it, it seems the case that the Lord has brought the king of the place that would later be the very heart of religious worship. He's brought the king who is also a priest to bless his church in Abram's household and Abram in particular, that Thus far seems 
fairly evident. And it's an episode that the apostle of, uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews recognizes particularly as pointing ahead as a kind of type and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I won't read all of Hebrews 7, but just the first two verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram, returned from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram, giving a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And if you follow the apostle's argument, he draws two inferences. One, his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And the second, as he is the king of a place called Salem, that means he is the king of literally peace. That's what Salem means. And in both cases, we have a lively picture of our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, the one through whom all true gracious blessings from the hand of the Father come, the one mediator between God and man, who is both our uh, almighty king and our glorious high priest, directing us in true righteousness, bestowing peace through his blood. Oh, indeed, we can give a measure of comfort and love unto those in distress. But if you are in distress this morning, if you are troubled in your soul, I cannot help your deepest and your keenest needs, nor could Melchizedek. Rather, for that, you must go unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the one of whom the psalmist says is ordained a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he receives his priesthood from the hand of Almighty God without successor or without predecessor. He is unique, and he is uniquely able to help you, dear one. If you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you may feel as though when you are in the midst of battle. You may feel that you are pressed down through the afflictions of the adversary, but the Lord Jesus is close. He would have you to know that there is peace, there is righteousness, there is life, and there is joy that is possible, and it is possible through him. Bring your cares and burdens unto Christ Jesus this morning, dear one. Find that he will give refreshment and also for the battle ahead. When we see here, indeed, that there is a meal pictured here, but also a blessing, a blessing that is spoken of. For it wasn't just the case that this man Abram and this man Melchizedek were brought together by the Lord to share a meal, but also what is recorded here is that there was a bit of a worship service that broke out. And you were reminded that it's good to indeed required to worship the Lord on the Lord's day where he requires it, but it's also within Christian liberty to spontaneously worship God during periods of thanksgiving, which is what we're doing this morning. So it was in this case where a minister of grace met with this little congregation and there was thanksgiving. It was in the context of a blessing, you see, that thanksgiving broke out in verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the, God, of the Most High God, possessor 
of heaven and earth. So the first thing that we see here about this blessing is that it is a blessing of Abram and not that any minister of grace has, if he is a mere man, the right or ability to bestow blessing, to bestow happiness or a state of blessedness through himself. But where he speaks with the divine authority of the word of God, he does so as a representative and as a herald. So also uh, was the case here with this minister of grace, Melchizedek. And some things I would uh, point out about this blessing that we see from verse 19, or verse 18, sorry, 19, I should say, is that it is in the name of the Most High God. The Most High God. And there are things about that name, which in the Bible is specifically designed to stir up our hearts to the source of all good and blessing. That is God himself. You see, we have very earthly minds as sinners, and we're very prone to think, well, why is there food in the grocery market? Why is it that there's safety in the streets? Why is it that we have Bibles and a gospel to speak of? Well, it's all just the way it is. But it's not so. If we have faith, we should direct all of our blessings that we have to the hand of the great creator and Lord. Let me just quote some of the Psalms which make use of this name the Most High God, to that effect. In Psalm 7, verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And in Psalm 57, verse 2, I will cry unto God Most High, unto God that performeth all things for me. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. You see, as you can see, it's thanksgiving that is most appropriate when we consider the name the Most High God. He is exalted above all and all depends upon him, the creator who transcends all things and yet is no time absent. The one of whom the apostle says, in him we live and move and have our being. Your very life this morning, it is utterly dependent upon God sustaining your life now. If God would will, he could simply relax his hand of blessing and your life would be snuffed out. And yet all that you have comes from him. It's this attitude of thanksgiving which separates the true believer from the hypocrite. The hypocrite just takes all these things and just so many things that we deserve. The one who is humbled by grace is low before the feet of God, saying it all owes to the Most High. And it's here given particularly to one of God's elect children, to Abram, one who is righteous by faith in the promise of the gospel. Blessed be Abram, the of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And we learn here, do we not, that all things of nature in the hand of the Creator are subservient and made to subserve His purposes and grace. The whole world itself in the course of nature and seasons, times, and holidays, it all continues for the sake of the gathering and the blessing and the comfort of God's elect in Jesus Christ. And ought to fill our minds with wonder and awe that the world is not consumed in the fires of judgment, even after all the sins of the nations. And yet here we see that the reason lies in the gracious purposes of God. There is yet a sinful people that must be gathered and blessed. So we see this here. And I think that this as well should inform us. Let me just read a few psalms in this connection. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Psalm 115, verse 16, The heaven and even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Well, it's a blessing unto Abram that's communicated here, but ultimately this itself is subservient in this little worship service to thanksgiving unto the Lord himself, which is also communicated by way of blessing here in verse 20. And blessed be the Most High God who hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave tithes to all. So first are the words of Melchizedek, blessed be the Most High God. And children, you might think that is strange here, after all. Doesn't it say, even in the context of the epistle to the Hebrews, I mean, it reflects upon this blessing given to Abram by Melchizedek that the, uh, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And if you read carefully Hebrews 7, it draws a, a very specific argument from the fact that Abram was blessed by Melchizedek as one who was greater in the way of privilege and honor at that point in church history. So why is it that a puny creature, however gifted by God, would then bless God? How can we bless God who is the source of all blessings? Well, indeed, he is the supremely blessed one. He is blessed of and in himself. Out of his divine fullness, he has no lack, no weakness, no deficiency. Even our very worship, it does not enrich him or make him more glorious in himself. And yet there is a lesson here, I believe, that God is pleased. God is pleased also to receive worship, even as the one who Psalm 50 verse 10 says, he is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And the same Psalm says that if he were hungry, he would not tell us, almost mocking us as though we think that our worship is somehow completing God. And yet the lesson here is that in his abundant mercy, he yet grants us the supreme honor of imitating his language of blessings and blessing him in turn, communicating that we desire, we desire, if it were possible, to add all that we have unto him. We desire that his name would be magnified in and through us. 
Isn't it the heart of all true worship? Imagine someone who is a redeemed sinner by the blood of Christ, even attempting to have a true heart of worship without beginning with gratitude, without beginning with the reality that you deserve hell and by nature are conceived and born in sin. The thing that really should bring you with wonder and with awe and with love for the divine Father and Lord is that he has redeemed you with his mighty hand. He has brought you from the depths of your sin and misery and elevated you to a position of honor and privilege among the family of God. This is the sense here of what Melchizedek surely knew as a believer and Abram as well. And note as well what it says there, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. You see, the destruction of God's enemies under the hands of his people is a manifestation of God's glory. We heard Something about that yesterday afternoon, about how the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even as the mediator of the church, is also the king of the nations, administering judgments upon his enemies. If we're embarrassed by this truth, we're not going to be able to sing psalms like Psalm 149, verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute upon them the judgment written their honor have this honor have all his saints praise ye the Lord Indeed, there's a place for this. In our proper callings as Christian men and women in the world, we are instruments of the Lord's righteousness and godly dominion in every area of life. And as we press on in the service of our king, there is the subduing of strongholds. Indeed, the strongholds of sin and the devil and this wicked world and spiritual darkness but also in very tangible ways. The kingdom of Christ is smashing all opposition. As you would consider, for example, that great rock which destroyed the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar, smashing all the kingdoms in opposition to the gospel as it is represented there in the history of this world. So it has been and so it shall ever be. The Lord will grant victories to those who obey him in faith. So we see a blessing here, a most remarkable blessing, much that is instructive unto us and much that brings us very low in ourselves and yet fills us with boldness to carry forward our missions under the care and grace of the Most High God. Well, there we have it. There is both a meal and a blessings, but I wish also to briefly speak of an example here. And an example, which I wish to briefly show, sets forth the character in uh, 
the first place of generosity and then of contentment. Generosity and contentment. So we see that after Melchizedek passes from the scene, then we have Abram's dealings with this king of Sodom, not a priest of the Most High God or even a believer at all, but a man of a very wicked nation, and surely a wicked man himself, though perhaps in this case unjustly treated by the forces of Chedorlaomer, and now been remarkably rescued, his people at any rate, from uh, his enemy by uh, the bravery of Abram. So we pick it up in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Well, the first thing about this spirit of generosity uh, we'll consider is that contentment which Abram uh, obviously has here. That he is one who, when he was approaching the forces of Chedorlaomer, greatly outnumbered though he was, he was uh, praying to God for this deliverance. And as he says, he lifted up his hand, as indeed in our culture, lifting up your hand represents appealing to the majesty and the honor of God in what you are about to say, making an oath. So as he prayed unto the Most High God, what he said was that he would not take anything, not even, we would say today, a shoelace from these, uh, these kings that he was seeking to pursue, that his purpose was strictly this, to save his beloved family. And so, as it happens, he was not intent on enriching himself, and so he promises to God he won't take anything else. So he tells to this king, basically, you can keep all of the stuff. Just let me keep uh, the people that I've rescued and allow my allies to get their share of the, the victory. And this contentment Matthew Henry speaks about, where he says in his commentary, a lively faith enables a man to look upon the wealth of this world with a holy contempt. What are all the or- ornaments and lights of sense to one who has God and, he- and heaven ever in his eye. A good word there. If we're very bound up with the dollars and cents to the point that we have anxiety about the Lord providing for us, then perhaps it's this problem. We don't think enough of heaven. We don't think enough of the blessings of the world to come. And we're not in a place where we can treat this world with a holy contempt and material blessings. They indeed serve our spiritual good, but they are secondary to it. That is a lesson that I hope we will take to heart. Now, I think I was remiss in not addressing this first, but I'll I'll address it now briefly, and that is the example of generosity that was shown in the case of Abram to Melchizedek. And uh, retracing our steps back now to Verse 20, we see that before Melchizedek left, it says that he gave him 
ties of all, ties of all. So tithe, of course, simply referring to one-tenth, one-tenth of his income and property, evidently not from the spoils that he received from war, but of what he'd had previous to this whole encounter. He gives a tenth of all that he has to to Melchizedek as a priest of the Church of the Old Testament. And it's instructive here that it shows his absolute generosity, not just a tenth of what he'd, he'd earned in spoils, but a tenth of everything else. We notice also Pastor Matthew Henry's comments here. When we have received some signal mercy from God, it is very fit that we should express our thankfulness by some special act of pious charity. God must always have his duties out of our substance, especially when by any particular providence he has either preserved or increased it to us. So the point here is, brothers and sisters, here is a test. Can we be assured that we have a thankful spirit unto God, that we have true faith in him? Let it be this. Let us give him the best and the first of what we have. Let us be a generous people that give out of our abundance, not only to the cause of the Lord and his church, but also to one another as opportunities present, giving of our wealth, of our time, of ourselves, of our lives, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof, that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May the Lord so use his word this morning unto that end. We pray these things. We praise the Lord and and go to prayer uh, afterward.